0: Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it's our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. Extra far away on the stage tonight is how I feel. Not spiritually, far from God, just... Physically far from you. That's how I feel. <laughs> um, I know I just laughed at my own joke. Um, so I have this. Those of you who've been around, I've uh, shared some of my whatever. I don't even want to call it a story, it sounds too dramatic, over dramatic. But I have this like pain condition in my neck, and it's a pain in the neck. <laughs> and uh, I went and got a what's called a radio frequency ablation today. It's the second one I've had in the last year, it's been about a year. And uh, hold on, i got to get the gum out of the corner of my mouth. They burn off, they burn a nerve. And so, uh, theoretically, it keeps the nerve or the pain signal, at least in that one area. And you can get some relief for several months. So I did that today. And uh, I did it before, and no problem. And as far as pain-wise, like, it's, it always takes about a week or so. So that's, I'm normal on that. But I got off of, I got off of the table where they do this. And I, the, the doctor had to like steady me because they put, you know, they numb it and some of that gets in your bloodstream and whatever, no big deal. But I'm like, dude, I, I mean, I am like floaty. And he's like, are you gonna vomit? No, man, I'm not. It's just like, you know, I feel it. And then it hit me like a fool. I've been trying this stupid intermittent fasting fad, stupid, stupid stuff. Anyway, I had not eaten since yesterday at uh, whatever, seven, and it was like, uh, at that point, it was like 11 this morning, and I told him that, and he's like, yeah, um, that's why you're an idiot. He didn't say that, but uh, so, and it's just kind of lingered, you know, it's gotten better, much better, but if you see me steadying myself, it is your metaphor to have, we should steady ourselves upon, anyway, yes. Another bad joke, I'm a dad, that's how we do it. Oh, also, you can pray for our family in a good way, Uh, Sunday, I actually won't be here at church, uh, if you're used to ever seeing me on Sundays greeting, um, Silas, my 12-year-old, he's got his first uh, jujitsu tournament, he's uh, been doing it now since October, and now, you know, with COVID, there weren't really any tournaments, and so now he's going to go, he's going to Fuller, and uh, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how much I love jujitsu, and Wish wish that I could do it. Wish that I could go get beat up real good. Um, but anyway, he's doing that, and so we're pumped. And we're, uh, we're heading down there, up there, down there, over there. Sunday. All right, let's talk. Um, the kind of banner of this sermon, God, or the series, God breathed, is this starting point that God exists and God has spoken, right? This is really the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God and then a couple of verses later, and God said. So God exists. If you notice in that very first verse of the Bible, Moses doesn't try to prove that. He just says in the beginning, God. And then he spoke this word. And if you know anything in the New Testament, you know that the word of God is personified in Christ. God exists. He has spoken. And the Bible is complex. It's complex in its content. But I've been saying it's, there's also complexity in what you bring to the Bible, me too, my presuppositions um, about it and my expectations that I put on it. And so part of the aim of the series has been to help us approach the Bible on its own terms. That's kind of the, you know, uh, do I know exactly what the terms are of the Bible? Well, certainly not all of them, but I think part of the aim here is to maybe pull back some layers on some of them. Um, before I go further into like where we're going to zoom in tonight, I want to read another portion of Psalm chapter 119. I did that a couple weeks ago. Psalm chapter 119 has 176 verses in it, and it's all praising God's word. I want to read a few verses. This is uh, verse 25 through 33. David says, I lie in the dust. See, that's why I started with that one. I like that one, dust. Revive me by your word. I told you my plans and you answered. Now teach me your decrees. Help me understand the meaning of your commandments and I will meditate on your wonderful deeds. I weep with sorrow. Encourage me by your word. Keep me from lying to myself. Give me the privilege of knowing your instructions. I have chosen to be faithful. I have determined to live by your regulations. I cling to your laws. Lord, don't let me be put to shame. I will pursue your commands, for you expand my understanding. Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. The Bible is ancient. This is just common sense. It's just, it's just a fact. But it's also brilliant because we're still talking about the same issues today, 2021, as the Bible was unpacking thousands of years ago. So we got this collection of assorted writings from all these different authors written on three different continents in three different language languages and written over a span of 1500 years. And it has whether people want maybe some of your friends family members want to admit it or not although the smart ones will even if they're not believers that we our culture most cultures right now have been shaped by this book, by stories from within it, application from it, the Bible. And I think one of the big purposes of Scripture is to move history forward and people closer to God. So that's kind of the big idea of this series. Last week, what we did, I called it Zoom Out. And we did it just a little bit, where you zoom out and you get kind of a wide view of the story of Scripture. And as you do that, you begin to like see how certain pieces fit together, like moments a thousand years apart. We looked at one of those with Abraham and Ruth, how they come full circle, but ultimately how all the Bible, I would argue, is leading up to setting the stage ultimately to bring or to show us Jesus coming to the, to the world, teaching us a better way to be human, dying for our sins, resurrecting from the dead to give us hope right now and hope Always, so I got. I have a slide here. Um, it's some recommended books. No, no, it's okay. Oh, there we go. Right? Yes. So I'm not. So here's what I want to do. I, if you want to screenshot shot that, great. Screenshot it because I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not even going to read them or make comments because well, I'll talk too long. But I, I th- these these would be the books about how to think about the Bible that I would recommend. That doesn't mean they're very good, doesn't mean they're the best, but uh, I'm the one talking right now, so there you go. But tonight, I want to give you a peek, instead of zooming out, I wanna give you a peek at how digging in and digging deeper into the scriptures reveals like that there's a lot more going on underneath the big picture, underneath the surface. And here's something I was thinking about this week, As you dig into the scriptures, one of the things it does is it helps the universal, right? Like these big truths for always, right? There's some of those found in the Bible. It helps those become personal, right? So some of these things that God said in scripture that are for all people, as you really begin to dig in, some of those universals for all people become personal to you. That's, I think, digging in is part of the way you get at that. So keep in mind, though, the more you learn to zoom out and get your arms around the big story, the big narrative flow of the bible. The more you do that, the more you're going to notice these subtle treasures underneath below the surface. So, I want to give you a few examples of this, okay? Obviously, just like last week, just a couple small examples of zooming out. And it's, the bible's too big, right? So, here's just a couple examples, but I it's these examples, I hope, teach something in and of themselves, but they also, I want to use them as a, not a map, as, a, uh, as an illustration to what we can find in the Bible as we dig deeper. So, I thought we'd start somewhere really, really simple. The Trinity. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. It's not. But people from the beginning, at least in church history, after the times of the New Testament, people were unearthing this idea of the Trinity as they dug into the New Testament. Here's the doctrine of the Trinity, all right? It says that God eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of like the doctrine, that's kind of like the unearthing, how church history kind of, you know, looked at the Trinity. But now now let me back up and do some digging, all right? You ready? One of the uh, major Old Testament mantras was uh, that God is one, the Jewish people. Um, It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, hear, like listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was, uh, actually, it's still one of the most important Jewish confessions among Jewish people today. They memorize it as soon as they learn how to speak, right? Like, uh, it's still recited every morning and every night among um, Orthodox Jewish people. The word here, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word one, it literally means unity or a numerical oneness, like a oneness but with multiple That's what it means. We use phrases like this when we say, you know, um, the team played as one, right? We understand that it's these multiple people playing as if they were one. And so the New Testament, oh, sorry, uh, that same word one is used at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, talking about husband, the very first husband and wife becoming one, The New Testament confirms this Old Testament um, truth that there is only one God and one creator. But the New Testament insists over and over that Jesus is God in flesh. The unique word of God. I alluded to this at the beginning. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, he does a word play. It's very intentional. He's a smart guy. I call him the poet fisherman. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he mirrors Genesis 1, verse 1. But John says, beginning his story of Jesus, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh, put, put on skin, and dwelt among us. In the book of Acts, I'm just digging, Trinity, Stay with me, right? Just digging. In the book of Acts, especially, the Holy Spirit is shown doing what only God does. The Holy Spirit is told about as forgiving sins. The Holy Spirit has forgiven you this day. Like doing things that only God does. But still, you find in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit is unique. He's doing things in his own way individual way and therefore some of the Jews the early Jewish people attacked the first Christians who were also Jews for worshiping three gods so it was clearly among the ideas even if it didn't have the word yet maybe trinity but Christians insisted God is one he exists as the father the son the holy spirit like 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 14 revealing the trinity in this blessing this is a good one It says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's one example. There's many. But it's the Lord, our God. The Lord is one, multiply complex. Now, confirmation bias is real. We know this. I talk about this a lot because I think it's an important part of uh, understanding who we are and how to live in the world. It's real. So if you're looking for the Trinity in the Bible, you will find it. But here's a more important point. None of the first century Jewish Christians would have ever been looking for something like this in the Old Testament. But they discovered it in spite of their confirmation bias. Listen to this scholar, uh, Millard Erickson. He concludes this in his writing about the Trinity. He says, the Trinity is so absurd from a human standpoint that no one would have invented it. We do not hold the doctrine of the Trinity because it's self-evident. We hold it because God has revealed this is what he is like. And I think that's right. I don't know that this man would care that I conclude that he concludes well. But I think that the idea of the Trinity is a paradox. In other words, no one really understands it. But I think the idea of the Trinity... It reveals something about how the nature of God works, that he is relational. And this is what you see in the New Testament, that Jesus, ex- or excuse me, the Father God exalts Jesus. And Jesus glorifies the Father and praises the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit lifts up Jesus. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller calls this the divine dance. It's like the circle. And you can think of it, by thinking of the opposite, which is what many of us often do in our lives, if we're honest, we have a more self-centered way of living. And self-centeredness, but you thinking caps on for me for a minute, self-centeredness is static. Here, here I stand, you shall revolve around me. <laughs> That's often the dance of selfish, sinful human beings until we're submitted to the better way of Jesus, but the Trinity nature of God orbits one another. You see this divine dance. That's the way marriage is supposed to be, by the way. Some of you, I've had the honor of uh, Amy and I uh, doing some premarital counseling, and one of the things my wife talks about is, uh, is teamwork, Right? Uh, that like when and you know she's ripping this totally off of the apostle paul but whatever amy doesn't ask permission she just does right but this idea that why would you want to fight against your partner and get in and and especially prove your way right like ha i told you so if they're your one right and she means that biblically speaking right teams good teams build each other up good teams Like, they don't, they don't, they don't, I told you so, right? So in other words, we orbit one another. As I'm trying to serve and lift up my wife, she's trying to serve and lift up me, and we're both benefiting and both serving. This is the nature of the Trinity, and we're made in God's image. So that's a pretty wonderful thing. The first three verses of the Bible, you ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Verse two, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God hovered over the waters. By the way, uh, you ever heard of Moby, the artist? Yeah, Moby. He's got a great song. One of my, it might be my all-time favorite instrumental song. Here's the name of the song. This is the title of the song, "God Moving Over the Face of the Waters." I'm telling you, that's one to. What do you Google? Music, Apple Music, whatever, you're streaming, whatever. Okay, Uh, God, uh, in the beginning, God, uh, the Spirit hovering over the waters, and three, verse three, then God spoke, saying, let there be light, and there was life. So you've got the Father as creator, you've got God as Spirit, you've got God, the Word, Jesus. What an interesting way to begin a really complicated or at least complex Book. A book that will go on to insist that the Creator sent into the world the Word to us, and then He gave us the Spirit to those who would trust in Christ the Word. And when we dig in just a little, we find treasures like this like how God is one, multiply complex, united, or like how Jesus had female disciples. You find this. This was scandalous. By the way, as was his friendship to outcasts. Jesus was uh, good at controversies. And maybe this idea that it was scandalous is why it's so subtle when it appears in the New Testament. I can't prove this, just working this out. But it could be as if the men who were writing the Gospels were still struggling to understand it as first century Jewish men, but they were honest in reporting it. So other than childbearing and homemaking, both of which, by the way, are noble and essential. Side note, like progressive, cool, I just did that for a second, going to go back to it, now conservative, like this idea that girls don't have to be homemakers and stay-at-home mothers and what, right, have to be in the, 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 the prime word, but those who choose to, oh my word, it's the best thing ever. Right? So it's still essential, but other than those two roles, the ancient world was virtually blind to women as leaders. So here's just one example, but you have to dig in and pay attention. You ready? Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says, as Jesus and his disciples, his male disciples, were on their way, they, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary. Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus. She said, Lord, don't you care that my sister, she's left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me. The Lord, Jesus answers, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about a lot of things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This Mary... Here in Luke chapter 10 is, is mentioned three times in the New Testament. All three times you find her pictured at the feet of Jesus. And those three times are not all in the same gospel. So I don't think it's like a teaching point you know, from one of the gospel writers. But here in Luke 10, verse 39 is the jewel that you want to dig in on. It says, Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening. In ancient Judaism... This phrase, to sit at the feet of the rabbi, it describes the relationship between the rabbi and the student. In Acts chapter 22, verse 3, in a defense to Jewish leaders that he, that Paul this is going to be Paul in in Acts chapter 22, he was defending himself, trying to show them that he indeed was a serious Orthodox Jew. And so he says to them, listen, I was brought up here in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, a famous rabbi of that time. He was my rabbi. I, I, I grew up at his feet. There was a common first century expression among the Jews. It went like this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The idea was the, the ancient Palestinian streets, they were dirt, right? And wherever that rabbi was walking, I am walk, like a little duckling. I am walking behind him, right? And I am covered in his dust, And the idea, it didn't matter if the activity was listening or doing. The point was being with. And if you dig in, you'll find that Jesus had female disciples. Here's one example. It's just one. You'll also find out that his ministry was supported financially by women. Luke chapter 8. Jesus is traveling, teaching about the kingdom of God, and he's healing people. But there's this subtle detail, if you dig in and pay attention to the first three verses. And the reason I'm saying it's subtle is because Luke chapter 8 Is about Jesus' preaching. He's giving parables. It shows how he heals people. But look at the first three verses. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Then it goes on to the preaching of Jesus, and that's part, that part of Luke 8, 8 is the most popular, not these three until tonight. No, I'm just kidding. But these women were disciples, and some of them were evidently wealthy. And here's the really cool detail. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Okay, you ready to dig? All right, here we go. Herod, this Herod, right, this is the Herod known as uh, Herod Antipas. His father was known as Herod the Great. You've probably heard of him more. Herod the Great was king for 40 years. The father, who at this point in Luke 8 is dead, he had built this Herod the Great, massive palaces, theaters, fortresses. He also killed a lot of people, including his wife and some of his sons. He tried to kill baby Jesus. Maybe you've read that story. Anyway, super swell guy. And after his death, Rome divides the kingdom of Israel among Herod's, Herod the Great's sons. And one of those sons was Herod Antipas. He got Galilee. Ever heard of it? It's where Jesus grew up. And it's where most of Jesus' public ministry took place. Herod was rich, and he had this guy, the CEO. Cusa, he managed like all of Herod Antipas' wealth and Cusa had this wife and she was a disciple of this healing, preaching, radical rabbi named Jesus and she helped pay his ministry bills. In Luke chapter 13, verse 31, people tell Jesus, leave, hide, Herod Antipas, he wants to kill you because like Herod Antipas was building the kingdom but Jesus was preaching about a new kingdom and a lot of people were listening about Jesus' new kingdom But Jesus continues traveling and preaching his radical message, partly because of a woman named Joanna, the wife of Herod's CFO. She'd been changed by the ministry of Jesus and now was helping fund his ministry. So now let me land this thought. Jesus' CFO is not only a female, Joanna, but the wife of Herod's CFO. So Herod... Antipas is ultimately financing the very thing he was trying to kill Jesus for, trying to snuff out all of that, and so much more if we just wanted to linger here longer, but all of that from just digging around a little bit at the subtleties of three verses. And then there's the cross, obviously difficult, Jesus dying for our sins, but just how stressful was it for Jesus? Mark chapter 14, verse 32, or in 34, it tells about that night that Jesus, right before he was arrested, tried and crucified. Let me read it. It says they, Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. It was a garden. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. But then he took his three, like right-hand guys, three. Ooh, I just thought of that. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's nothing. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch with me. Mark uses in that text I just read three words here to describe Jesus' spirit, his psyche. Deeply distressed is one, because it's one word. It literally means to throw into terror or be thrown into terror and shock, alarmed. Then there's the word troubled. This is anguish. It's, it's described often in ancient Greek literature as a heaviness that falls upon people that are depressed often talk of this heaviness and a sense of darkness. And then the third word is sorrow. This is deep grief. Like, like you feel like you're gonna lose your breath and die. You're so broken and sad, but I'm not done. Luke chapter 22, verse 44, when he tells about this exact same scene, he says, he adds that Jesus was sweating and it was like drops of blood. Now, that detail is only found in the gospel of Luke out of the four gospels. Luke was a medical doctor in the ancient world. So I find that really interesting because there's this condition known as hematodrosis where the capillaries in the forehead burst. When when you have extreme stress, you can Google this and find pictures even. Extreme stress and fear and blood mixes with the sweat, and when you sweat, it's red. It's blood. So Jesus' shock and stress wasn't simply the fear of death, but taking on the sin of the world. And we know that Jesus didn't cower ultimately and surrender to it, because we know the rest of the story that he got up to meet it. But knowing about the cross and the resurrection, like knowing the story is powerful enough. It really is, I believe that. But still digging just a little bit in and finding some of these subtle details of, how, of just how horrifying it was on his human spirit and psyche as God made flesh, made human Unlocking some of that opens some new insights into his own humanity, but also his empathy for ours. Jesus' sweat blood in the night, and this love can change everything. It can grip your heart and mine, and it can ruin your life in the most beautiful way. This is the gospel. And all of this from simply digging in on a few Greek words and paying attention to what's under Neath the surface. And the examples are almost unending. Let me, let me like, uh, I started to say, let me, I was gonna use a weird kind of illustration saying that made sense 30 years ago, but um, here are a few really quick examples. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham that he's gonna make Abraham into a great nation, a blessing to all. But, and, and so th- that seems to be the reward, right? You're going to have a child, and you're going to end up becoming a nation that blesses all nations. But then in, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, God says to Abraham, Abraham, don't be afraid. I, Abraham, I, God, I am your very great reward. You kind of miss that, right? Right? Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. You know this one. I've preached on this before, but you've got David who goes out with his shepherd staff and a sling and some rocks to face the giant, Goliath. And Goliath has this uh, shield bearer that goes out in front of him, and he's there, and Goliath sees David coming at him, and David says, you know, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? Sticks, Goliath? Like, homie has one stick. You know, singular, not plural. Um, but here's what people think that Goliath likely had a condition called acromegaly. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but the pituitary glands uh, produce too much uh, growth hormone. And one of the main side effects that we know in the modern world of this is double vision. Hey, punk, why are you coming at me with sticks? That's pretty. That's pretty cool, right? It doesn't change the story of what David and Goliath means, you know, whatever it means. You know, I think it means a lot of things, but man, it's pretty cool underneath the surface. John chapter 8, this woman caught in the act of adultery, they bring her, the Pharisees, the preachers of the day, bring her to Jesus, throw her there. She was caught in the act, throw her there. The law says, kill her. What do you say? Jesus, you know, gets down and begins to, I don't know, write in the sand, what was he writing? Everybody wants to know. What was John chapter seven about? There was a festival in John chapter seven, a Jewish festival. What was that festival about? What did it symbolize? How might that in Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 13 hint at what Jesus was trying to do? I don't know. You can Look if you want. Acts chapter 17 verse 24. Paul is preaching to pagans. I love this. This is one of my favorites. And he quotes... One of their pagan poets to make his point about God. What was that poet? What else did that poet say? What does Paul doing this imply about sharing our faith in Jesus with people who don't know Him? Matthew chapter six, verse thirty-eight. When Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, sorry, not sure if that's me. Turn the other cheek when the right cheek is slapped. Does the cultural significance of right and left with our hands change the meaning of this? I don't know. you got to look. It might have had something to do with people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., but I'm way ahead of myself. Sermon on the Mount here in a few weeks. John chapter 12, verse 41. John quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. He quotes it, and then John says, you ready? He says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah chapter six, what did Isaiah see? What might that mean? Well, you gotta dig. It's beautiful. You have to stoop low and dig in because under the surface you find all these gems. This way of studying the Bible, the Bible works as a metaphor in our lives, right? Like we trust God is connecting and synergizing big historical pieces of our lives, past present, and even future. That's the zoom out. That's the metaphor of like zooming out, getting the big picture of the Bible, but also doing that in our lives. But we also have to dig in and pay attention to our souls, to the subtle stuff under the surface that we may often ignore. So let me end this way. Where do you need to dig in and dig deeper in your soul? What are some subtle displays of neglect? some leaks of bitterness or jealousy or hatred or irresponsibility. But that's not else. What are some of the subtle displays of God's mercies in your life? Right? Like like Abraham, his call to you to come, join him in, in an adventure. Or His redeeming and renewing of your past story. What are ways, are you paying attention, that God's mercies are making all things new every morning? Well, the way you see that is to pay attention. The way the Trinity is teased out in the New Testament. But if we take the idea serious, we find it at the very beginning. Maybe there's an area that you're working through right now. But as you dig deeper, you find that the truth that you're discovering now was present all along. Allow me to do your parents a favor. For some of you, you're at that age, or at least I was at your age, where I was rediscovering my parents. Like, were they always this great? Were they always this wise? You know what I mean? Like, man, and I was seeing things that were always there. But I was awake in a way that I hadn't been earlier. And that's, just, that's just a freebie. Or a choice like Mary at the feet of Jesus. Here's what I would say to you. There is much good work that you could give yourself to. Call that career. Call that just goodness in the world. And maybe a little bit of both. But as you search your soul, the one essential question is this. Are you at the feet of Jesus covered in the dust of your rabbi? Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 it says, the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and then walk in it. and You will find rest for your souls. Jesus echoed that in uh, Matthew, I can't remember the chapter. I think eight, but you can look. And he says, come to me, all of you who are heavy, burdened. Come to me, I will give your, give your soul rest. The Spirit of God is with us. He is. But life is struggle. So you stand at the crossroads and you look and you dig in and you dig deeper and you move closer to God and you ask for the ancient path. And there, behold, we have the Scriptures, but even more, we have Jesus. We have Spirit here with us permeating God's will in us, here on earth, as it is in heaven. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray, and uh, I want to, um, I, I didn't see any uh, new questions for Q&A tonight, but uh, there, there were uh, at least one, maybe two, from last week that we didn't do, so uh, I'm going to pray, and if you want to stick around, yeah, stick around. I'm just going to meander, I'll set a timer, and we'll look at a couple of your questions from last week. And then after that, Derek's got a couple announcements. Lord Jesus, here's what I want to do, Lord. I want to ask, Spirit of God, the stuff there at the end we, as, as I was just kind of thinking about the Bible, studying the Bible in this way of digging in and paying attention to some subtle details as a metaphor to paying attention to some things that are leaking out of our lives, but also some of your mercies that are here right now. Some transformed ways of seeing our story that maybe we missed, and maybe they were there all along. Pray that you would help my friends as they do that internal work. And I thank you. I thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, sometimes I'm not sure how trying to pull some thoughts together to offer some ideas are going to work out. Work out, and sometimes I leave here more confused by the things I say, and other times. Um, I feel like it might be helpful, and so I hope it is, um, but that's for you. Um, so thank you in advance, Holy Spirit. You say your word when it goes out, it never returns void. So thank you for your word, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's a couple questions. Um, this is one I, I didn't get to last week. Uh, let me keep my word and uh, make a timer. Um, how do we break down the negative, preconceived notions about the Bible that our friends already have? I thought this was great. I was bummed I didn't get to it last year. And I have a one-sentence answer, sentence answer, but I'm not going to stop there. <laughs> uh, here's the uh, one-sentence answer. Let me read the question again. How do we break down the negative, preconceived notions about the Bible that our friends already have? Live a consistent, meaningful life. Godly life, right? But I want to say more than that. Um, first Peter chapter 2, verse 12. I think he probably got it from Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus talking about the light. We, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill doesn't like hide itself, right? It's there to be seen, and so allow your good deeds to be seen by the pagans so that they can glorify God. Listen. I, and, and i 'm talking as much about me, maybe more than many of you, that often as believers, we think that responding to the critiques of our faith must be with more intellectual and better arguments now there's a place for that, certainly i mean i don 't i don 't want to be stupid about my faith, right, but I do think that we can sometimes. Make a bad assumption that that is what someone who has negative preconceived notions about the Bible. We, I think there can be a bad assumption that that's what they need more you, you living that out. But let me make a couple comments about how to live that out. When they offer you um, what you, this person who wrote this, what you deem a, a negative preconceived notion, ask an honest question to get clarity. Like, say, what part of the Bible are you talking about? What verse? Like, not to try to catch them in anything. Like, straight up, get your Bible. and Like, hey, what? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I got questions about the Bible, too. Which one are you talking about? Um, and then they say, hey, tell me about why you interpret it that way. Like, you know, how do, how do you read it? Maybe I can learn something from you. How do you, why do you read it like that? And just keep asking questions. And then, I want to use some logic here. If it truly is a preconceived notion about the Bible, as the question person asks, then they clearly haven't thought deeply about that part of the Bible. Now, that's not a judgment on them. It is me interpreting this question because it's the pre if, you pre. if you have a preconceived notion, then that almost always comes from upbringing, culture, presuppositions, right? It means that there hasn't been a lot of digging in um, and looking wide, right? What does liberal theology say about that? What does conservative theology, what is it? Ancient. What does the ancient world say about that? Probably not a lot of that. And you don't want to catch them in that because then you're not living a consistent, meaningful, and godly life if that's your aim. So your goal can't be, if they have a preconceived notion about the Bible, your goal can't be to break down like they're thinking about it. I think your goal should be to live out a better alternative and to ask questions. Like to actually allow Like, either their well-thought-out notion, right, that maybe maybe it's not preconceived, maybe they're really smart, and you learn some stuff from them. And maybe you end up going, wow, I've never thought of that. And that's hard. I don't know that I like that. I'm gonna go think about this. I'm gonna go read. What do you suggest? And I'm gonna go ask some people that seem to think different than you about what they suggest or whatever. And a caution. Make space that they don't actually have a, make space that they may not actually have a preconceived negative notion about the Bible, but that you may have over an overly simplistic or naive preconceived notion about the Bible. I mean that with love, though. Hey, I did that pretty quick. Good job, Dusty. <laughs> um, this person asked, I love this one, this is great. This is, gonna, this is a fun one for me to meander about. Um, This person wrote, I've met some really nice young adults here at SYA, and I've been feeling God's peace and spirit when I'm with them. I want to hopefully have my friends meet these people, these people here at SYA, but is it selfish if I want to just experience them in this secret place that I can connect with God in? Yeah, I think you should invite your friends for a couple of reasons. Um, First, if it has blessed you, then it would... Probably bless your other friends. But second, do it to potentially reveal some things about yourself. If you end up finding that you feel pulled in two directions, and I'm making an assumption that maybe these friends are non-believers, but maybe not. But you may discover that you're one way with that group and another way here, and that might be what's creating the tension not whether or not you want to give up having this unique experience. So a little bit of psychoanalysis. I, I am not, uh, not qualified at all to do that, but I just did it, you know. Um, that, that would be a gift, by the way, if you found that that was the case. Um, you may also find that those other friends, especially if they don't know the Lord, that they begin to be changed for the better, and you may find that you don't really like that. Again, that would, if that were true, that would be a gift because it would reveal some dark things in your spirit, right? Like that you want this group of friends that do these things that aren't of God, but man, it's really cool. Now, I'm making some assumptions. This may not be you that asked this question. But if it is true, it's better to have those dark things exposed to the light and see and actually see, than for you to remain blind. So, invite your friends. I got one more. One more. Cool? This person asked, this was good. How do I make lots of money according to the Bible? Here it is. Get ready. Get your notes. Clearly, I'm a wealthy man. I know what's up because I know the Bible. No, I'm I'm being facetious. Uh, First of all, let me say something about having money. Having money is not bad. The Bible never condemns being wealthy. But the Bible indeed warns about being wealthy. The Bible also doesn't tell us about a method to achieve wealth. Now, I, I, I'm going to read what I wrote because I think it's pretty good. All right. Scripture focuses on how to build your life and soul, not your bank account. <laughs> but it kind of does. Thank you. It kind of does. It teaches you how to build a bank account that matters, right? How to use money, how to be wise and take care of your family, but also how to be generous. So let me read a few um, passages about money um, just to uh, bless the brother or sister that asked this and maybe some of you that want to hear about it. And uh, I'm not even going to make much comment on them. And then uh, I'm going to invite my buddy up, Derek, and he's going to... Announce some things. Second Thessalonians chapter three verse ten. It says, "The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat." Now, it doesn't mean that if people are unwilling to work that work that we won't love them and help them. But there is a principle here: work is good. Responsibility is good. First Timothy chapter six verse ten says, "It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil." The love of money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus, Jesus, always saying crazy stuff. He says, you cannot serve two masters. What do you mean? Well, he tells us. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. The word he uses for money there is pretty interesting. You should look it up. Uh, by the way, blueletterbible.com. Just a freebie. Yes, you know it. There you go. blueletterbible.com. You can get the original Hebrew uh, language, the Greek words, what they mean, what ancient people have said about them. It is a wonderfully free uh, tool. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. Two more verses, Proverbs 22, a good reputation is better than wealth. And finally, to the young pastor, Timothy, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19. I am gonna make a comment on this, so buckle up. Command the Americans. No, that's not what he says. But, it, but the meaning is there, okay? Command those who are rich in this present world. I mean this technically and with a good heart. I think, I mean, I think. As much as I can assess myself, I'm right before the Lord in saying this. The poorest among us in America are still some of, in the, in the percentage, in the... It percentiles some of the most rich people in the world. That is not a statement of like poo-pooing on taking care of the poor. I, like many of you, have read the Bible. There are thousands of statements about God's people taking care of the poor. I just want to put it in context. We are a rich people. and Praise God. Let's be rich. Let's do good. With it, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who, and he does a word play here, put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life That is truly life. Hey, thanks for letting me uh, work out some of that. Those were fun questions. (laughs) Say hi to my buddy. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at we are SYA.